from hell. <laughs> All right, this is Ryan Feldman. That's the man is here, joined by Chief Chuck, and we're already laughing. We're already having a good time. So, uh, Chief Chuck, go ahead and introduce yourself however you like. Uh, sure, man. I don't even think you need an introduction. I think most people uh, know who you are. I don't. I don't know, man. I'm no AJ Cortez or <laughs> anybody like that. Um, I don't have Lambos and a mansion, and you know, I don't have any of that. But no, I'm. Uh, I appreciate you having me on, man. We've been trying to do this, and I just keep forgetting because yeah. I'm. I'm old. But, uh, <laughs> but we finally no, made good. it happen. No, hey, yeah. Um, I'm Chuck Whitworth, a retired Navy chief. I did. Uh, did 24 years in the Navy. I was a, uh, a P3 flight engineer for most of that. Um, got about 5,000 flight hours in a P3 Orion up in the front, but I was also a maintenance guy and I did some carrier time. And before that I was in the army for two years. That's a little, that's, it's not necessarily a secret. It's a, it's not a well-known fact on Twitter that I did two years in the army. Um, I got out of the army cause I was tired of camping out for a living. So, um, I decided I wanted to fly, and so that's how I got in the Navy. But, you know, other than that, man, I'm just a real simple dude that grew up in the hills of North Georgia. Um, you know, old background, southern, you know, southern background, raised, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, please, thank you. Um, you know, you, you fear, in the order of things in life that you fear, you feared your father's belt and your mother's tongue and your God, you know, those three things in that order. Um, so, you know, it's just, uh, you know, started hanging around. I'm an old dude on Twitter. In Twitter years, I'm like, uh, I don't know, I think I'm like <laughs> 1,433 in Twitter years. Uh, but I'm 55 in real life. So, um, but no, it's, it's been great, um, you know, meeting up with guys like you, uh, you know, Huntsman, Garrett, you know, the, the Ion group that, that we, we've got a corner of. So. Yeah, we've uh, we've got a good group. It's uh, it's a shame there's not more older, um, you know, people. A lot of guys, I think, you know, you didn't grow up with Twitter, so mm-hmm. it's not familiar and it's kind of hard to get into. Whereas us younger guys, it's just it seems more natural. Although I I didn't really use Twitter for quite a while. Um, I had an account, but I never really used it. But it's it's yeah. nice to meet, you know, you and and Billy Redhorse. Um, both of you guys stuck out to me yeah. right away. It's there's not a whole lot of guys offering insight and wisdom from a, a pretty full life like you've lived. Yeah. I mean, I started off, you know, I guess a few years ago, you know, I started doing probably when my kid got old enough to to do computer stuff, you know, people yeah. were talking about Facebook, you know, so I got on Facebook and all that. And then, you know, just like everything else, you know, as soon as the, the older people started coming to Facebook, all the kids left, um, <laughs> you know, I vaguely remember, I vaguely remember MySpace being a thing, but I never did that. Um, Cause Neither. really, uh, I was out of the country that most of the time that time, but um, I guess it was about a year and a half ago that, you know, I got tired of Facebook, man. And it was just, and if you people, you, I know you're on Facebook and a lot of people we, we are, um, yeah. but it just got to be so freaking ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. you could, you really, I mean, people that aren't on Facebook that are on Twitter, you think, you think Twitter becomes an echo chamber and it's just full of crap. You really should go over to Facebook and watch what happens there. Um, I mean, it is a, it it just became one of those things to where I got tired of it. So I first thought that Twitter, man, you associated Twitter with, you know, celebrities, movie stars, 
you know, companies, stuff like that. So when I, I was like, you know what? A friend of mine was, was tweeting and, and he's a minister. We went to high school together. And so he had a, he, I started following him and then it just, I kind of like, man, I just don't know about this thing because, you know, I'll put something out there and, you know, you got no response for a while because I think I had like three people following me <laughs> and, you know, so I drifted away, but then I came back and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to use it to to pick up on current events, find out what's going on, follow some, you know, follow some celebrities and follow some new stuff. And then, um, believe it or not, I saw a, uh, I saw a tweet from Ed Lattimore because I've always been big into self-improvement and leadership. And so I started learning what hashtags would do. And so I started searching on stuff and a, and a, and a Ed Lattimore tweet popped up and I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool, man. This guy. And so, you know, I, I responded, I said, Oh, you can reply to these things. That's cool. So I replied to it and, you know, it kind of replied back and some people I'm not saying, no, you know, started following. And I was like, wow. So I was like, well, this is pretty cool. And so, you know, you start, well, who's, you know, you start learning how the ropes are, right. you know, who's Ed following? Well, I'll go follow this person. So that led me to, to Alexander and that led me to some other people. And then, you know, it just exponentially from there. And so then it was, I was like, well, you know what? I, I'll throw some stuff out there. I'll tweet. Um, and I did, and then, you know, I got some engagement and, you know, there after a while, it was like, holy cow, man. I looked down and it was like, wow, I got a hundred followers. <laughs> I was like, there's a hundred people out there that care what I say. I didn't know at the time that 90, like four of those were these automated bots and, and advertisers, but you know, yeah. that dopamine rush we talk about was, it still counts. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, so we did that, but yeah. And then, um, somebody was like, somebody found out about my personal side and they're like, how old are you? I was like, well, you know, at the time I was like, I'm 54 and all that. And they, uh, they're like, you know what? You really ought to check this guy out. You know, the gentleman missed it. Okay. So I did. And I uh, started following him with, with Billy and, and we started engaging. And honestly, before I had a couple hundred followers, that's where I discovered the magic of Twitter. Yeah. Um, and the magic of Twitter was, was Billy and I had had this exchange long enough and he goes, Hey man, why don't you, uh, why don't you, you know, here's a number. Why don't you give me a call if you want to talk sometime? That's yeah, great. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it just led from one thing to another. And then, you know, he goes, follow these guys. I follow 50 people, all this stuff. And so, you know, it, you know how it goes. You get to that yeah. point yeah. Um, to where, it's you know, tonight, you know, I follow mm -hmm. tonight and the next thing I know I'm in a conference in Atlanta and Billy's like, well, I, li I live in the area, you know, we got to do dinner. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, do you mind if I, uh, if I invite, you know, TJ, I was like, sure. And, you know, so we met and had dinner and that's to me, that was the defining moment of, of where Twitter was so cool was these guys that you'd interacted with online. Yeah. We are, you know, we're sitting having dinner for two, three hours and we're laughing and talking and it's like, we had known each other forever. Uh, and then we start doing these Zoom things, you know, with Garrett and all that. So, yeah, um, I, I think what we bring, uh, Billy, myself, you know, there's now it's, it's you see how it is. Max Panzer, you wouldn't know by looking at Max that, that Max is a gray way guy. Uh, Dennis Himes, you know, yeah. you know, these guys. I think we it took me a little bit to get into the groove of accepting that role as a more or less an, a tribal elder, you know, and 
at first I was very reluctant because in my mind, I don't feel like I've a, earned that title and that honor. And I don't feel like I'm that old. But they call that they call that imposter syndrome. I think everybody struggles with that at some point. You know, I, I struggled yeah. with it for a long time. Um, you know, I, I originally had a different account, and Billy followed me on that one. Actually, Billy Redhorse is like one of the first, like, you know, well-known personalities to to connect with me. And then um, I started this account as a, it was kind of my burner account because I, I found myself wanting to say things, and I didn't feel comfortable saying it for my main account. So I started saying it on this account. And right. at the time it was a non. And then I, I come to find out pretty quickly that people like to hear you actually open up and speak the truth and speak what you want to say. So that was my first big lesson. And it's, um, it's been instrumental in my growth is that it's, it's hard to do at first, but just opening up and sharing what you know, what wisdom, you do think it's stupid. These things that you think it's obvious, it's not obvious to everybody. And you, you forget right you know, where you were when you were younger or, or when you didn't know these things. And um, you know, that's for guys like Billy Redhorse and you bring to the table. It's all these things you probably take for granted. And, you know, young guys like us, even if we know it, it's kind of nice to just be reassured sometimes by somebody that's, you know, a little wiser and, um, you know, more knowledgeable about whether it's going to work or it's not going to work or, you know, what makes you an honorable man you know, yeah. stuff like that. We, we respect a, a guy that's been in the Navy, a guy that's older, a guy that's got a family. Um, you know, it says a lot. Yeah. And I think, you know, we'd like to say, I mean, for us, Billy and I kind of laugh about it and, and, you know, you guys have some of the same experiences we have and it's not, and we tell people and we tell the younger men, especially cause that's our, our niche area. Right. Is but you know, I'll mentor anyone, but you know, we tell you young men, it's like Billy, you know, Dennis, Billy, myself, Max, you know, Texas Dom, a lot of these guys, it's it's not that we're any smarter than y'all. And it's just that, you know, you guys have, have had some experiences where you got your ass kicked and you're learning from it. We've just had our ass kicked a lot more times than y'all. <laughs> that's really the only difference. Yeah, and those are the best teaching moments. <laughs> exactly, you know, and that's that's a that's a and, and to be honest with you, Ryan, that's a key point that I try to get across to these young men is yeah. that's why I tweet it sometimes. It's like, I won't do the, I will not do the work for you. I, w I will hold my hand out. I will throw you a rope. I'm there for you. Yeah. I will not do the work for you because, yeah. and it's not to be mean and it's not to just to blow you off, but it's, there's some things that you just absolutely have to, you have, there's paths you have to walk yourself um, yeah. to show yeah. you where the path is. I can tell you what's on the other side of that path. Um, I, I, I can probably tell you what's going to jump out of the woods at you on your walk. I can't, I'm not going to, but I'm not going to walk with you and hold your hand. Yeah. Most guys get stuck in that, um, that learning stage are so afraid of failure. They just want to keep, you know, stacking skills and, and learning all this stuff and they want to get ready and wait for the market to be in the right moment. They're afraid the market's saturated or it's not the right time. They're always making these excuses, mm -hmm. but, you know, even if it doesn't work out, if you go out there and just try something, you're going to learn a lot. I mean, the first time I made a website, I remember I sent some link to somebody and they like responded back. Unfortunately, he's a nice guy. He's like, Hey man, you got some dead links on your, uh, your page. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. So I started like looking around and just clicking buttons randomly. I'm like, yeah, that didn't go anywhere. Did it? So you just got to learn by trial by fire and you do, you know, you learn so much quicker that way. Well, you know, I, I learned that, you know, I learned it in the Navy as 
part of the, the whole leadership continuum that I've now come to realize years later that my leadership continuum probably started from the time I was six years old when I first started with Cub Scouts and with Little League Baseball. Um, and and it, you, you start from there, but it's like at this point being, you know, a program manager for the government for a, for a, you know, multi-million dollars worth of, of, of resource and with a, a semi-large team that I'm responsible for, I tell them all the time and it's the same lesson I, I tell everybody, same lesson I turn in, and just like you mentioned, we'll sit there and someone will have an idea and I go, okay, let's try it. Yeah. And I will inevitably get the, yeah, well, that was my idea, but um, well, I'm afraid of it. Well, what about this? Or, or, or no, what if that doesn't work like that? And I, and I'll sit there and I'll let them go through this and then I go, okay, stop. This is how we, this is how you analyze. And I don't care. You're right. I don't care if you're investing in the market. If you're buying Bitcoin, if you're trying to learn a new recipe, you're learning a new skill, whatever. Right. Always evaluate it by this metric. It's like, okay, if I do this, am I going to kill anybody? That's first and foremost. Is there a chance of injury and, or death of a serious nature to myself or anyone around me? That's first and foremost. So if it's not that, then you go, have I adequately analyzed and evaluated the risk versus the reward? And after that, understand there's always going to be risk in everything. If you're doing it, there's going to be risk. You can't avoid it. You can only, what is it they teach in risk management? You can either accept it, mitigate it, manage it, or ignore it and hope it goes away. And that's yeah. always the worst solution. So understand, accept that risk but be willing to say to yourself, I'm comfortable with this risk. And then eventually I tell them you, you, you can die on the vine of paralysis by analysis. At some point you have to stop thinking and you have to execute. So exactly. let's try it. Let's try it. Well, Chuck, if we try it, you know, we, we might lose, we, you know, we might, we might waste this many hours and this much money and, and manpower. Okay. I'm the manager. That's my job. If I'm willing to accept that risk, there's nothing we can't recover. We can always recover this. So get in there and try. And I think that's, that's what I see a lot of on Twitter with the younger guys. It's, they sit there and they, they watch all the, the gurus and they say, well, I'm going to spend 24 hours out of every three days reading on the proper form and technique to doing a bench press and a bicep curl. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. Eventually, <laughs> dude, you got to go pick the metal up. Just yeah. pick the bar up. I forget. I've heard a couple people say this. I don't know who first said it, but I love um, the advice given to people that don't know how to go to the gym. Just just go to the gym and lift heavy shit or lift things and pick the, put them back down. You know, it's, it's I mean, that simple. It's not hard. Yeah. And, and I see that more and more. I mean, my, in, my, in the reckless days of my youth, in the, you know, the early days of having, you know, just that, 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 cocksureness and that bravado of right. you know you know fucking i'm a pirate man i'm gonna go do this and you go fling yourself off into doing whatever um there's been many there's been many times that i've come dragging my monkey ass back with my tail between my legs beat up and scarred up and my mentors 
at the time and my leaders at the time, they'd sit there and kind of get a big chuckle out of it and look at me and go, well, what did we learn? And you sit and go, and at the time I'd be like, well, chief, you know, <laughs> here's what I got out of that. And they're like, all right, bet you won't do that again. Will you? <laughs> nope. yeah, right. All right. Did we learn something? Yep. And then pick your head up, put your ass back in your britches and get on about your business. You're all right. You're going to be fine. You know, you, yeah, you got skinned up. You either physically or emotionally from your ego or something, but you, you just keep on and keep picking up and moving. So you're right. I mean, it all comes down. And that's, and that's what, kind of what I try to do with my advice to young men is, you know, I love hearing your plans. Um, but what are you going to do with it? And I, and I tell a story. Um, I got to teach a leadership class not too long ago. And, and I, and I told a story about all of these great, you know, these, these concepts we have now with our education, young men and women like to think and they like to plan and they like to, to I'm going to make a linear fishbone chart. I'm going to do a fishbone diagram and then I'm going to do a pie chart and then I'm going to do a, a, a Kanzai moment and then we're going to have a walkthrough and then we're going to do, and it's finally, it's like, Jesus Christ. I'm like, do you guys realize that in the midst of World War II, we went from, hey, we think we can build a bomb that will absolutely fry half of fucking Japan in one shot. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think we can do it. We went from that conversation to dropping an atomic bomb in about four years. Yeah. And so I tell, I tell leadership classes that I teach now, I'm like, take that timeline of four years and what they, and this is what they accomplished in that four year timeline. And then now lay it against your timelines of today. We can't get an environmental impact study on the mating habits of the Eastern <laughs> Appalachian darter snail in less than four years. So, and I kind of lay that up there to go, this is my point And this is my analogy to you that you can get so wrapped up in the planning and you can get so wrapped up in the analysis that by the time you get done, everything is OBE as we call it in the military overcome by events that, it, that it's no longer relevant. So then like you that. become, then you become what I re lovingly refer to is the situation has now become a self licking ice cream cone <laughs> because it's just, this is all we're doing. We're doing this. Yeah. You, you, the dog is chasing the towel, whatever you want to call it. But in your own personal life too, you can do the same thing where you sit there with a budget with, with how do you, how do you do money? You know, how do you do, I think you, you, you put out a tweet earlier today for your, all your email, the shiny things. Oh my yeah. God, dude. <laughs> I, I read that email today and I was like, Oh my God, I want to take this email and I want to print it out and I want to take it and paste it on dude's heads. Yeah. And, I, and I've been on every day. I've been on both ends of that spectrum. When I first graduated, I, I had a decent chunk of change and I went out and bought a shiny new car and I, you know, it was great. I traveled a lot for work. I, I used the hell out of it. And honestly, looking back on it, it kind of wasn't the worst deal because it, it lasted like, I think, seven or eight years. And I actually sold it. So it's it's still driving. Um, and it never broke down like more than once. I think I think it had like one issue. 
But then I started thinking like, man, I could have taken that money and I could have invested here or mm. there and done so many better things with it. You know, the, the economist in me kind of like gets eat up by it. And I had, a, I had a moment of clarity when I um, had an impromptu moment where I bought an old Jeep Wrangler off of a friend of mine for like $1,500. Now, he gave it to me for a really good deal. Mm. But I'm driving this thing around. And I'm like, I'm having more fun driving this beat up old Jeep than I ever did in that $38,000 SUV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do I care if it's, you know, brand new and shiny? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the, the crux of the email was these young guys, they, they lost after, you know, the Lambos and the Ferraris and all those. Like, you got to be making a lot of money to justify buying a Ferrari. Because even if you've got half a million dollars and you want to buy a $200,000 car, I mean, you could buy a house, you could go travel the world, you could buy, you could buy uh, security. I mean, that will give yeah. you peace of mind for, I mean, forever for some people, depending on what your cost of livings are. So, well, and, and I think, you know, the thing that I like about that too is, is, you know, as insightful as an email as it was, and you're, you're right. You. It's nothing. This is, this is just a regurgitation of things that we've all been taught and should have been taught. And, yeah. you know, I used, I got taught early on because I had an old crusty chief who, you know, he blew his money, literally blew his money every payday on Budweiser and unfiltered camels and um, hookers. So, I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a life. I mean, this is old Navy. You don't do that anymore. But, <laughs> but the guy was, he kind of told me, he goes, you know, he, he was one of those great, great people that I use as an example now that even a, even a bad person can be a good teacher. Um, and this chief was a case in that. And he would tell me, Chuck, don't, you don't want to be like me. He goes, listen, he goes, you're a young sailor. He goes, and, and the guy he would, you'd pitch. I mean, you can picture him, man. He's sitting there. He's an old crusty chief, bunch of tattoos, smoking yeah. unfiltered cigarettes, smells like booze half the day. But the guy was smart as a whip because he would sit down and this was before Excel spreadsheets. So this guy could do it on a, on a piece of paper with a stubby pencil. And he drew something out and he goes, all right, how much do you make here every two weeks, shipmate? And, you know, I told him, I remember it was, at the time it was pennies, you know, it was like 400 bucks or 500 bucks every two weeks. And so he starts doing it, got this stubby pencil and he's doing this stuff. And I'm like, he's like, shut up. And he's doing this and he's, he goes, all right, shipmate. And he hands me this piece of paper and he goes, if you were smart and you're not, he goes, because none of us are at your age. He goes, but if you were smart, he goes, out of that $500 every two weeks, he goes, I know this sounds like a lot. He goes, if you take $100 every two weeks, that's $200 a month. And at the time, you could buy, still buy savings bonds. And that was really encouraging the Navy was to buy savings bonds. Because we were still, at that time, we were still guaranteed a retirement. We didn't have the savings plan, which is the government 401k. Yeah. We didn't have all that. Yeah, so bond rates were kind of decent back then. They know? were. Now they're like 2%, which is okay. Well, I mean, yeah, at the time, you know, because they would tell you, he goes, if you take, but you know, just like you've seen, and you've, I think you've even talked about it, is if you take that $100 every two, that's $200 a month, right? and you put it just in a, just a low yield, like you said, 2% when I was, you know, 20 years old, he goes, if you can do that every, every payday for the rest of your time in the Navy, you know, he did the figure and he goes, dude, at the time, he goes, you're going to have like 50 something thousand, $60,000. Yeah. 
yeah. at the end of a 20 year career, he goes, and it was, you pay, he goes, point is, he goes, pay yourself first. Right. Yeah. He goes, you're going to run up bills. He goes, you're going to, he goes, now he goes, knowing you and knowing all the rest of you moon dicks running around here, <laughs> he goes, you're going to blow me off. He goes, and you're still going to go out and you're going to buy that freaking Mustang from the used car lot right outside the car out the Navy base. And you guys are going to get And the first thing they're going to ask you is what kind of payments would you like to make? Not yeah. how much the car is, what kind of pay? And they're going to back you into one of them 21% interest car loans that you're going to be so upside down on. And that's the point. And so I try to, even to this day, I told my son this and I tell, I still tell the young guys and young ladies that work for me. I'm like, look, you work for the government now. You're in the Navy, man. Take, take this, take this money and put it in your thrift savings plan. And we have different blocks. Um, maybe it was you talking about, maybe it was somebody else I read. It's, um, it's kind of like the funds you can put in that, you know, they have various risk things. It's basically a money management fund. Yeah. Index fund or an ETF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Isn't it email? That's what they do with us with, with TSP. Yeah. And, and so for like me, I'm in TSP now with the government. I can, I can, um, they all, I, they automatically match. They automatically take out 3% match 3%. I can put in up to 6% and they'll match me up to 6%. And then I can put in up to as much as, something like 15% until I hit the tax limit for, you know, not pre-tax uh, contribution. Yeah. But I tell these kids, I was like, dude, you're, you're like, you know, 27 years old, you're out of college. Go with the riskiest thing there is, man. Yeah. I wish more people would say that to me because when, when I was growing or when I was in my 20s, I had I had a decent chunk of change. I got I got lucky enough to have like a good chunk of change. They gave me a little tiny bonus, but like at the time, it was like a gargantuan amount of money to me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I kept asking people, everyone's like, oh, just play it safe, put it in your savings. But this is a post-2008 world, it's quantitative easing. There was no savings. It was earning right. quarters, you know, like literally pennies and quarters. Uh, looking back on it, I should have invested in like, fuck anything. Um, yeah. You know, I I wish I would have invested in the shit that I was like using. I'm like, all right, I use Amazon all the time. Yeah, I should invest in these guys. They seem to know what's going on. And that stock has gone up like, I think, 500% since then. So. Yeah, exactly. You know, $1,000 would be $5,000 a day or whatever. And you can do that if you're young because you have time to recover it, you know. Um, if you put your money into, I love this. This is one of my favorite stats. It does not get told enough because it's so simple. Since 1930 to today, if you put your money into the S&P 500, it'll earn you 7% every year mm-hmm. on average. Now, the tricky part is not to freak, your, freak out when you lose like 30% one year. Yeah. It's going to come back and just keep buying in well you're right and that's what I, that's what i tell these young kids that's like go with the go with the government i mean because they, they 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 block these out for you and they have these advisors that this is what they do they're paid financial advisors for the government that work for, mm-hmm. for a savings plan that their whole job is to come around and advise military and government civilians and so i tell them i was like go talk to these fools i was like you at 27 putting in three percent four percent you can be as risky as you want to be right now. And I tell them the exact same thing. You know, I was like, don't be, and I see it all the time as government workers. God almighty. I was like, you don't want to be that, like that dude that's sitting over there on his lunch hour and he's logged into his TSP and he's hitting refresh every seven minutes. (laughs) And then he's got Google up in a corner and he's watching the stock market ticker and he's losing his shit. Every time something happens, I was like, my TSP, I, I, a, I don't watch the stock market because I don't care. Right. Um, 
I don't watch my investment. I don't care. There's somebody paid to manage that. I went with a, I have a, a mix, even at 55, I can still do a little bit of risk, but I right. have some more of the more assured things, you know, treasuries, bonds, stuff like that. But I'm also drawing a military retirement. I'm seven years away from drawing a second government retirement and then selling my shit to a contractor at the highest price, you know, as a consultant, which will reel me another third retirement. I mean, I'm not going to run out of money, but the cool thing is, is I don't say that to be arrogant. I say that to be assured of the fact that I have arranged it so that I'm not going to run out of money, you know? And that's the thing is telling these young folks and young men and women to, it all goes back to where we started with this is, Hey, understand the risk and then do something. But you're right. You'll see people to be like, well, you know, my grandpa told me that if I'll save in a savings account, I tell him, I'm like, dude, you were tripping over $5 bills yeah. to grab a dime. Yeah. And they're actually losing money yeah. because the money is being printed so fast. The rate of inflation, if you're not earning about 4% a year on average, you're actually losing money. So there's no savings account that's going to get you more than 4% right now. I think the highest is like 2.35. Oh, if, those, you're, if you're lucky. Those are the online banks. You know, you got to go to like Ally um, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, something else you mentioned earlier before I forget. You, sure. you mentioned um, they would they would match your retirement. So like the military, um, a lot of uh, corporate jobs will do this too, where the employer will match what you put into your 401k or retirement mm -hmm. fund or whatever. So like, if they are offering a hundred percent match or even a 50% match on like, say the first 2% that you put in and you don't put at least that much in, I mean, you are literally burning cash. You are. Yeah. So, I mean, if 2% is like, maybe it's only 200 bucks a month. Yeah. Adds up. It's $2,400 a year. And if they're going to match hundred percent of that, that's $2,400 that you have in your retirement fund. If you put yeah. it in there. And it is. And it's guaranteed. I mean, it, and the thing about if you're a government employee or uh, and if you're military, cause we both have the same thrift right. saving plan. I mean, the thing is, is guaranteed. I mean, you're not the money that you put in up to the base, which is 3%. That money is safe and guaranteed and insured. You will always get that money back. It can't, it, it just by law. It here's, can't. here's one that my audience will like, um, by law, if your wife decides to divorce you because she likes the pool boy more than you, they can't come after your 401k untouchable correct. correct you know and that's that's again and, and that's just the value of of i tell people all the time and we did it too my wife and i went it was i was fortunate that a chief that i was stationed with and flew with he was on my crew for a while you know we're good friends he got out of the navy and he retired and he became um well even while we were in the navy he was a, a command financial specialist money was his hobby you know analyzing investments yeah. stuff like that. It was a hobby and he got out of the Navy and, and got his certifications and, and all this. And then now he works for through savings plan here in DC. And, you know, he came down and you know, I took him took Jim to lunch one day and he sat down with me and my wife and he goes, Hey, he goes, look, dude, he, he laid it. He built me a binder. He laid it all out for me. He goes, this is what you should do. And he told me, he told us all these ins and outs of it. And so I took that and turned around and showed my coworkers. I'm like, look, why aren't you doing this? And then, you know, I told other chiefs, I'm like, you need to be telling your troops that, you know, especially these young sailors, you know, 22 years old, man, you're first coming to the Navy. Like you said, it's 3% for them. The government, the, 
because here's how it works. They're going to take for your retirement. Now they're going to take 3% base out of your pay automatically. It comes out pre-tax, but they're going to match that 3%. Like I said, that's a hundred percent match. So there's 6%. And then you can, you can elect to go up. And, yeah. and for and me, if I you can, to. you should. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm putting like, I think 8% of my into a 401k right now. I tell you what, man, right now, I mean, I mean IRA. sounds bad when I say it this way, but because of the way the, the laws are structured, the tax code structured and, and all this stuff right now, I max out a, a FSA, the federal savings account, the health savings account. I have to max that out. I have to max out TSP. My wife has multiple Roth IRA. We have anything that's pre-taxable because if not, they eat my ass alive <laughs> because they yeah. reduced all the deductions and it's just, I mean, the tax would eat my ass alive. Yeah. If, yeah, if I don't know my generation, for some reason, they're not as astute as your generation was. I'll bash the millennials a little bit here with when it comes to taxes, because I, I have so few friends that go to an accountant. It blows my mind. And some of these guys are making good money. I mean, if you're making, if you're making minimum wage, that's one thing, but if you're making like, a decent amount of money you need to be paying in your account because they're going to save you that money. You're just like, what, $400 on your, you know, what, a yeah. W-2 and maybe a 1099. Your taxes are most likely not that complicated. Mine are well, complicated yeah. as shit because of all well, the I things people, I do. It's, and like it's still only like code. 700 bucks for me, but it's going to be way yeah. cheaper for everybody else. Look, man, the thing you're absolutely right about, I mean, the tax code is what, 37,000 pages long? Literally no one has ever read it. Exactly. <laughs> Even that the people that, that passed it don't. Even the yeah. IRS doesn't know. Well, <laughs> but here's the thing and i tell these guys all the time man it's like if you don't think if you don't think that the government will come get you i say like, because it's just like anything else when they owe you yeah. money they'll take their ass sweet ass time paying you but when you owe them money they're, they're pretty quick come, man and I, Actually, I, I, hear, I hear people still go well i just won't pay any tax oh they'll get you don't I, I got audited last year. It was a, it was an honest mistake. I didn't mean to, and I fixed it, but it was, man, every time an IRS, IRS letter showed up in my mail, like my heart skipped a beat for a second. So you just don't know. And it's, you know, you can, you can fight a lot of battles, but the IRS is always a losing battle. And I tell you what, man, here, man. you want to you hear a cool story? I do. About, about tax. <laughs> this is cool. A cool story about taxes by Chief Chuck here. <laughs> man, I was still, I was still on active duty and I was, I was married previously. And uh, my ex-wife was, um, she was an accountant by civilian trade and she went into the Navy as a reservist and all that. And side, side, side subtext to that is, you know, I, I told her, I was like, well, you know, you can do this military stuff part-time as a reservist. It'll be a little income for you and it'll be something fun to do. You, you won't be, you won't make much out of it. Well, she's a fucking admiral now. So <laughs> but anyhow, um, you know, we were sitting there and we'd gotten divorced and I was stationed in New Orleans and uh, I get a call, man, that they're like, Hey, investigator wants to talk to you. And I'm like, okay. And I was like, well, I don't think I'm up for my security clearance yet, but whatever, man, I may be, I don't keep up with that shit. They tell me when I got to go do this. So I go up in the freaking conference room and close the door and this person flashes these credentials. Hey, I'm so-and-so and uh i'm from the internal revenue service i'm like whoa 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 i'm just a lowly e6 in the military man i haven't been and they're like no 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 what's what's an e6 again uh it was a first class petty officer okay enlisted rank it's it's really you don't make a whole lot of money right so i was sitting there and so the the investigator goes no hey man look we're uh 
we're here to do a background investigation. I'm like, oh, okay. And they're like, you know, were you married to X? Like, yeah, I was. Okay, we need to have a chat. And I'm like, okay, do you mind me asking why? They're like, well, she's applied for a job at the Internal Revenue Service as a armed uh, IRS agent. Wow. And so we had to do, you know, full background. She'll be top secret clearing all that. Okay, yeah, man. So, I mean, I, I, I wasn't, it wasn't a bad breakup and it wasn't vindictive and I just, I didn't talk to her. And so I was just, I answered their questions, honestly. And so, uh, and so we got done with the interview and I said, well, I was like, well, isn't that something? This is every guy's worst nightmare that your ex-wife is now an, uh, a gun-toting agent for the IRS. <laughs> Investigator kind of sat there and she laughed. She goes, actually, she goes, you know what, Mr. Whitworth? She goes, you actually don't realize it, but you've got the goose that laid the golden egg. I'm like, I don't understand. She goes, not that you'd ever have to. She goes, but in the event that you ever got a serious audit, she goes, we can't. Because all you'd have to do is claim that your wife, ex-wife had a vendetta out against you. And it, it, I, I was like, so you mean to tell me that I'll never get audited by the IRS? She goes, no, that's, I can't, I can't tell you that. And I can't promise you that. She goes, you may very well get picked for an audit. But what I'm telling you is you need to bring this fact up if you ever are audited. And I'm that's, like, well, how about that, man? I was like, man. but I mean, I didn't go off and do anything stupid, but right, right. it's just one of those things where you realize that it's like, wow, man, some of the shit that goes on in this world with these, with, with what happens, it's just, it's funny. Yeah. It's, it is funny. I, you know, people talk about like how high school is a popularity contest and I'm like, what do we magically change when we graduate? <laughs> it's still a popularity contest, just to different degrees. It, it is, man. But you know what? And I tell you, I'm not, just I'm not, I know this wasn't supposed to be, the the Ryan and Chuck finance show. No, that's what's supposed to be anything. That's what I never know what's going to happen. <laughs> there's a few other things that we'll talk about that ought to be a, a hoot. But I mean, I learned a, a a lesson when we went to buy the house that we have in Maryland. We were fortunate. We owned a house in New Orleans that that we were actually able to pay off, um, and do a lot of good investments. And then um, we paid off our house through good luck and good fortune. We paid off our house in New Orleans. I mean, in, Mer in Pennsylvania, when we moved up there, and then when we got ready to move down here, we had to get a mortgage because of the, the size of the house and all that. And so we were going, and I learned a very, very big lesson about debt. And you, I know you, you know a lot of people preach about no debt, no debt, no debt. Well, you need to manage your debt, and there needs to be some form of – there is good debt because we sat down because I was raised in a certain manner of – you save money, you pay your bills, you pay off all your bills, and you're not in debt to anybody. Well, we go to sit down and get this mortgage for this thing, and I've, I, I already own a house that's paid off that's worth 200 something thousand dollars in Pennsylvania. We have no car payment, minimum credit card, but we pay that off every month. And my wife and I both had 800 plus credit scores. We're thinking, no problem. We go to sit down and they go, well, a little problem yeah you're quite the risk mr whitworth i'm like excuse me how yeah. am i a, how am i a credit risk and they're like well because you have you pay off all your bills you save money and you're not in any debt and i'm like and in what universe bizarro world did this become abnormal and bad and the guy he looked me straight in the eye and he goes 
you're right. He goes, you were probably told by your grandfather and your father that this is the American way and this is what a good, solid American man does, right? I'm like, yep. He goes, well, he goes, that's not quite how it works. He goes, we consider that a risk now because you've got all all of this disposable asset and income. He goes, who's to say you don't lose your shit one day and you go off and you start buying that Lambo, that mansion, the Learjet, you know, he goes, then you overextend yourself and we can't guarantee. He goes, you've got no record of having a debt that you had to pay. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand. I did have a debt. I paid it off. He goes, doesn't help you. That's not what we want to see. I'm like, holy shit. So I was like, so you're telling me that I need to have bills out the ass to be able to get a loan to have another bill. He goes, exactly. Yeah. I was like, so do you, I was like, do you understand how stupid that sounds? He goes, I do. He goes, but that's just the way it works right now. So, you know, I mean, I don't know what the current advice is on that, but I think that's pretty current. Like, that happened to me um, <clears throat> recently, uh, a few years ago. So I, I had, um, I had a very cush corporate job, but I wasn't making a ton of money. I was making good money. It's not a lot. And I go to buy a house, right? And Let's let's just say hypoth- let's just say we'll say in factors. So they wanted me to buy like a house that was seven times my income, mm-hmm. or something like that, or more. They said maybe even eight times. And I'm looking at I'm like, all right. First off, I'm a single dude, no kids. How much house do I need? Second off, you're gonna own the house in like six months if I buy this stupid thing with this stupid ass loan. So then. I made the smart decision and bought a significantly cheaper house, like something like two and a half times my income or three times sure. my income. And um, a few years or a couple years later, um, I don't have that corporate job anymore. And my income is all over the fucking place, but it's good. Mm-hmm. It's way better. But it was, it was like some, I mean, there was a month where I think I made like a thousand dollars and there was like months where I'd make like multiples of that. And I got shot down by multiple banks. Like I went to like four or five different banks and I, I couldn't, I literally could not buy a house and I had to get my dad to co-sign, even though my income yeah. had like almost tripled, but it, it just won't do it. It's just the way it works. And it took, that was my hard lesson on that too. Um, you know, now I've had enough years to prove my income, which is also kind of a weird thing. But again, I went to buy a house and they just yeah. kept like, you need to buy a bigger house. You need to buy more house. I'm like, what? yeah. At what point is it enough? Like if I make $30 million a year, do I have to buy the, you know, $20 million house? I mean, shit. Well, I mean, yeah, on their scale you do. Right. And, I, and yeah. I think it's, you know, but I mean, and to more the, the practical side is, you know, you can swing it the other side. And we were talking, my wife and I were talking, and we always like to say those fucking millennials now, even though, <laughs> you know, our I kids. I still say I am one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our, our kid is, I don't know, he's 24. So, yeah, I guess he technically is, but, I, I you think know, he's borderline. But we, you know, we, we, we see it now because it, it and, and here's where it caught us is, you know, my wife and I, you know, we're go, you know, you see me tweet all the time. We go to roller, we go to amusement parks, you know, we go to Cedar, you know, Cedar Point, all this, and we go to all these amusement parks, but you know, he's gone, you know, we've got the income now we, we go and blow. But the thing we notice is we see it at all of these parks to stay in at nicer hotels than we stay at. 
and just blowing through money. You know, you go to these amusement parks and yeah, you know, I'll buy my kid a $15, you know, waffle cone and I'll buy him a $10 Mickey sippy cup thing. You know, my wife and I are going back out to the car and eating, you know, cheese sandwiches and all that. But that's just because we like to keep our money. But, you know, it's, you know, we constantly see it in our neighbors too, that are younger and they've got four or five shiny cars. They're living in these, this nice neighborhood in this nice house. How do they do all this stuff? And they're up to debt. They're up to their ass in debt. Yeah. But it's almost like, you know, some of the, the younger generations now, it's kind of like, hey, we've got this freaking live for the moment thing. Yeah. You know, we're not going to be like you old fuckers. We're going to be, you know, <laughs> we'll worry about paying our bills then. Think think about how we grew up, though. Uh-huh. You know, when we were... When we were young, we weren't even adults yet. We watched a couple of buildings fall down in New York City and, and planes fall out of the sky. And then we go to college, and despite all that, everyone tells us to go out and, and get raises and, and, and ask for a raise. And, and we're going to be worth millions one day because we're the most educated, um, intelligent class generation ever. And then, and then this derivative bubble blows up in the financial markets in 2008 and we can't get a fucking job at IHOP. Yeah. And I think it's just kind of weighed on us, you know, our whole generation. I, it's hard for me to say cause I've had a pretty good run of it. I got lucky in some of the decisions I made. Um, mostly I, I interviewed very well in one of my jobs and I got hired at a company that maybe I shouldn't have been hired at, but I did. And, um, I think it I think it leads into a lot of our binge drinking and our anxiety and and all those things and it's just it's just a different world and it's complicated. Um but but you're right. A lot of people do burn through it and there's definitely there's definitely this obsession with living in the now. Um you want to talk peak living in the now. I used to live near Carmel, Indiana. I didn't live in Carmel, Indiana, but Carmel, Indiana or if you're from there, Carmel cuz they're <laughs> preposterously obnoxious and uh very ostentatious these people think they're hot shit and it's like one of the nicest cities to live in in the country it's a really nice place but um <laughs> this lady that was cleaning she would like clean houses for uh, her side job and i mean it wasn't like one or two of these multiple houses that she would go to she would go in and clean and she loved it and i'm like why do you love cleaning these rich people houses so much she goes well there's no furniture i'm like come right. again she goes, they don't have any furniture in their house. Why don't these people that have half a million dollar homes and $600,000 homes have no, why would they not have any furniture? She goes, well, what they do is they'll have a big party every two or three months or so. They'll rent the nicest, fanciest furniture. They'll get like a big old flat screen, have this huge party show off and then they return it. And then they do it again six months later and they show off the new stuff that they bought. They just, constantly yep. competing with each other but they're all doing the same thing which is the hilarious part like it's not like there was one or two families that are doing it. it's like almost all of these houses are just putting on for show i mean what a horrible yeah. way to live i mean you don't actually get to enjoy it well you know and we we saw that in pennsylvania we finally yeah. i was the, we moved i moved the family up there in 2005 and it was all the you know we were up in the allentown area and so all the families from new york and new jersey that were, you know, selling high, coming over, getting the balloon payments and, and the balloon mortgages during before the mortgage bubble, you know, buying ten times the house they could afford. And you we would, we walked to our neighbor's house and introduce ourselves and you meet them. You look in their windows and there's nothing in there. Yeah. But they got a house. 
you know, and they go back to the city and they tell their friends living in, you know, the little houses in the city or the apartments of showing them pictures that are nice, beautiful, you know, four bedroom, two and a half bath house out in the suburbs and the hills of mountains of, of Pennsylvania. But I think, you know, you're right to a point is, you know, I kind of, I kind of give a hard time about, you know, some of the anxiety driven of, of the, your gen, not yeah, your generation. I mean, yeah, it almost, it, it gets to the point where it's like, almost like, you know, it's, and I thought a lot of this a lot, you know, it used to be with me that grumpy old Clint Eastwood guys like you freaking pussies, you know, everybody, you're anxious, you know, we're all anxious. But then I, re- I realized I got to thinking on this and the nine 11 thing is a good thing, not a good thing, but it's, it's a good point in that we certainly had bad things happen when I was growing up. I was born in 1963. I remember vaguely, you know, that the little Southern town we were living, it was segregated. Uh, you know, the, the black section was on the other side of town. Um, I was a young man. My dad was a volunteer fireman, small town of 2000 people. Everybody did something. Uh, but when Martin Luther King got shot and, and killed, you know, there were riots to a point. And that whole turbulent time of the mid sixties, you know, I mean, I was a year old when JFK got shot and then civil rights leading into Vietnam, it was turbulent times and it was certainly bad things. But I think the difference between the two to compare and contrast, and I think that's this, this may even be a good email or an article or a tweet thing to do between me, you, um, Ross, a couple other people and Garrett is I can contrast the two because you sit there and you look at two events on a timeline and the difference comes is the gap we have in our generation of why I go, you freaking sissy millennials and you guys go, dude, this massively bad thing happened is in 1963, my mom stayed at home with me and raised me. My dad worked. We had Walter Cronkite who came on for 20 minutes a night and that was all the news you got to see. Yeah. The paper came on Sunday. The local paper came once a week, but the big Atlanta papers came on Sunday. And as a kid, your dad read the paper on Sunday. I got the comic section because as a young kid, that's all I really needed to know. And so we grew up and they did their job of what they thought was isolating and protecting us from the bad shit. Yeah. You grow up and you learn about it through history and history, you know, victory, the victors write the history books. So the history that you learn is always going to be skewed one way or the other. Now we go forward in time to your generation and probably the pivotal moment since Pearl Harbor happens with 9-11 and where are we at in this generation now? Okay, so now in your generation, most of you, and I say not you, but you as a collective, most of you were latchkey kids. Um, both your parents worked because they either had to, or, you know, mom wanted her career, dad wanted his career, you know, Hey, you got the Xbox and the PlayStation and all this and come and let yourself in watch MTV raps or whatever, <laughs> play video games and heat up your pizza rolls. But yeah. then you also were born, you guys were born after the 24 hour news cycle started to where we had this constant barrage of CNN and then Fox yeah. News, and then the internet comes along, and it goes from, you know, having to do broadband dial-up and go, you got mail. 
Now it's instantly on your phone. It's on your computers. Everywhere yeah. you turn, you were just bombarded with shit. And so this tragic freaking mind altering event happens. And you're right. Nobody was there to insulate you guys. And nobody had, you, you, you had to, you were on the front line with us watching it as it happened. So I think that kind of, you know, not to make excuses, for anybody's behavior on one side or the other, for us to look at you guys and go, you freaking sissies, or for you guys to sit there and look at us, you fucking boomers, you know, you're the ones that ruined our, our, what, our environment and all this other stuff. <laughs> I think it's important to look at those two separate events on a timeline, but look at the timeline and look at, look at how, look at how our, our culture and our mores changed over those, you know, 40 years. I think that's important. So yeah, I think it's I think it's huge. I think it it shapes you. All that stuff. I was fortunate. I, I had the I had the 1950s upbringing that you had. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was just lucky that my father had a high paying job. My mom was kind of old fashioned, and they were pretty happy that way. Yeah. And I think it gave me a tremendous advantage over other kids. I think I went to school day one as a kindergartner, smarter than the other kids, and I think I was always a few steps mm-hmm. ahead of everybody, and I never let up. And um, I owe her a lot of gratitude for that. And yeah. I, I owe both my parents a lot of gratitude for that. But yeah, it was it was weird growing up. I'm I'm 32, so I'm a millennial, but I don't I don't associate myself with a lot of the millennial issues because like, you know, I grew up with the phone, but at the same time, like my phone was a phone. It didn't really right. do anything else. And you know, we we still had just enough like leniency where we could get out and get in trouble and sneak into a house that you know may or may not have been ours and wasn't completely built yet and go out and drink or whatever we got to experience i don't think these young kids are doing that anymore i've been reading this book called um igen it's probably the third time i've mentioned this on this podcast um but it's talking about how these young kids today are growing up like not doing any of these things and not to say that kids should go out and and drink and do dangerous shit like that but they're not even getting their driver's license so you know i don't know i, I was wondering sure. i want to see what your perspective was on that like why do you what do you think's changed since like when you grew up versus what these kids are growing up now i mean they, they feel like incredibly more sheltered than ever before but it also seems like yeah. they don't want to rebel which is strange to me well you know it, you're right and in, in my wife and i saw this over not just raising our son but bringing him into, you know, scouting. Um, and that's a whole nother show for me to, to get on my rant about Boy Scouts. But watching kids grow up yeah. through that, you're, you're right. I mean, when I grew up, you know, I was old enough to go out and play, you know, at six years old, seven years old. So that would have been 1970. You know, in the summertime, you know, you literally, it's just like you've heard about in the summertime, you know, you're out of school. You get up, you eat breakfast, have a bowl of cereal, your mom kicks you out of the house, and you're not expected you're not expected to be seen back in the house until the streetlight comes on. And so you get on your bike and you and your friends would run and roam. And I mean, we were playing in sewage creeks and damming them up. We were put tying firecrackers to cats' tails. We were building forts in the woods, you know. I mean yeah. and you know, you could really, if you wanted to know where everybody was, you know, you would sit there and look where all the bikes were laying in the yard. But it was also in a small town, too. You had the opportunity. I mean, it was a given. At, at noon, you know, whoever's house you were at, your mom's going to bring out a bunch of cheese sandwiches and peanut right. butter sandwiches and Kool-Aid. And that's just where you ate at the time. And 
you know, I grew up with the, you know, you'd fall down and, you know, your dad would look at you and he's like, I don't see any blood, guts, or feathers sticking out of you. So you, he put that orange mercurochrome methylate on you that burns like hell and you patch up and you move on. And, you know, we played little league baseball and you know what? Sometimes you didn't make the team. You got cut. You didn't make the team. Yeah. And a lot of times you lost and you didn't get ice cream and you didn't get the trophy. And I think what happened is over the years going, like you said, to now is a lot of it was a bunch of parents that decided that my kid's not going to grow up the way I grew up. Yeah. And then we got an influx of some of these other cultures and that's not to say that's a bad thing, but just some of these other ideas of, you know, different psychological musings and theories of, oh, my God, we're killing the self-esteem of the child. Every child is important. So now when we go play soccer, everybody's going to get a participation trophy because you're all special. So that led to the entitled generation of going, well, I'm special. I've been told my whole life I'm special. What do you mean I didn't get the job when I interviewed it? What do you mean I didn't get the job? What do you mean I didn't get the promotion? And then it escalates again to where my child's not going to do that. And so then it becomes, I think it became a, a race to where we're all so consumed with what we all do is the kids today were given, basically, I call it a payoff, you know, Hey, dad or mom will be your pal. Here's a new iPhone. I can't, I can't do that this weekend with you, but I'll get you the newest, bestest game and I'm your buddy. Yeah. And so we kind of went from a shift from being parents sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to we were really more concerned about being our child's best friend. Yeah. And it, it kind of hurt because we, we want to, if you get to that point to where when your relationship is that tight and it's so compressed into time that you're going to protect that child at all costs. My wife's a substitute teacher. She's seen it in the schools to where if I got a bad grade, and my parents had to go see the teacher with me, you could best bet your butt, I'm getting my ass chewed when I leave. But now you'll have parents that come and will scream at the teacher, what do you mean my child got a bad grade? My child couldn't possibly do this. And so the children have become so insulated in this little cocoon, and some of it's technology, and some of it's just parenting of not wanting to be the bad guy and pull the cord at a certain amount of time and go, hey, Junior, go outside and play. Well, and granted, I, I will. I know people listening and people that see this later are going to be like, okay, so you're going to turn your child loose on the street today and he gets picked up in a van by a meth head and he gets taken and dumped in the river. Absolutely. I understand the dangers out there, but the dangers have always been out there. The dangers will always be out there. You have to be a little more vigilant. You don't need to be, a, as I call it, you don't need to be a helicopter parent. You need to be an air traffic control parent. Yeah. You don't need well, to be over the top of them. You just need to be watching them on the runway and be ready to take yeah. action when something happens. Yeah, it used to be like Stranger Things where the kids just roam the streets like wild. Now maybe it's they stay in your front yard. They stay in the backyard. Exactly. Or, yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. I mean, shit, most people have much bigger houses nowadays anyway. I mean, these yards are getting pretty big. so it's not And turn, you know, you've got to turn them loose. And I think, I think yeah. and you know, this is almost going full circle back to where we started almost an hour ago with a conversation is with your kid, you got got you got to let them fail sometimes, man. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. how you learn. You, you fail. And it's, you know, I, all these lessons that I try to teach people and all these things about honor. How do you, how do you get to, how do you get to the point of living an honorable life? 
you're going to screw up and do some dishonorable things. That's how you know where your measure is. That's how you know what your, your baseline is and your, your boundaries are, you know, sometimes you, you got to say something at the family reunion that's going to embarrass the family to know that that's the boundary of things you don't say when you're in public. You yeah, don't then, talk about mom's special toy in the bedroom drawer <laughs> when, when aunt Phyllis is visiting for Christmas, you know, you learn those boundaries. And you, and you gotta let the kid know. Like, there's a lot of like, I don't want to upset them or I don't want them to not like me. I think part mm. of the being their friend thing comes from, um, there's, there's so many families now that are divorced and split mm -hmm. up that it creates, it's, it's, it, it does. We used to have a monopoly, right? Like the family, the nuclear family had a monopoly on raising the kid. Like we're going to mm -hmm. raise the kid this way and nobody else is going to raise it a different way. Now we've got competition in the marketplace. You've got mom's house, you got dad's house, and maybe somebody's more fun than the other one. And it, it becomes this, this weird thing in some cases. I've seen both examples. I've seen where it works fine too. But well, we have a, we have a personal friend in the family and, they have a son, the, her, the son, I know him, I had him in Scott, and they're good friends of ours, but the mom and the dad never married. They grew up, he went spending one week at mom's, one week at dad's. Dad's a little better off than mom is now, because mom did, the, she never got married again and all that, and she's working hard, and she's a single working mother, but we're at the point where this child, was, and I still call him, he's a, he is truly a manlet. He is a senior in college, and he still spends, it's still my week with mom and it's my week with dad. And what will blow your mind is he's studying to be a psychiatrist. Oh, Jesus. So this little asshat is going to go out into the world <laughs> and try to solve people's problems when he's never even had any problems to solve of his own. So, I mean, I, and I, I love him to death, but I've told right. her over and over again. And she's gone. She goes, Chuck, I wish I could send him just to live with you. Because, I mean, all the scout parents used to say, I wish we could give our kid to live with you and Miss Roseanne because you ask our son, we were the meanest parents ever. Because I don't take no bullshit, and I teach people how to live life and how to do something useful with your life. And so, I mean, I think that's, you, you see that that's, that's a prime example of what you see is it was the marketing of the parents. Well, dad bought me this game console. Well, yeah. mom, she's not going to be the one to say no. She's going to go out and do something. So it's, you know, you're buying back and forth. And trust me, the kids are smart. Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll play them. Yeah. Like a freaking violin, man. And it happens all the time. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a large part of where we're going. But, you know, can we turn back? Maybe, maybe not. But I think it just becomes that realization that, that, that sooner or later, one generation is going to have to say enough is enough. Yeah. And somebody's just going to have to step up and say, hey, look, this is how we're going to do things now. And how do you shift it? I don't know. I think it's, I think we're on a good path. You're starting to see more and more maturity. I mean, you look at Benji, you look at Garrett, you yeah. know, the guys that are younger than you even, that yeah. the maturity level that they're starting to exhibit gives me great hope. No, every once in a while, I look at those guys, they kind of piss me off because I think because of myself when I was their age, and I'm like, I was a fucking idiot. <laughs> you know, like, I could yeah. have been, you know, so much farther along if I would have, like, thought to even – yeah. start a blog or start tweeting or just to, to build something. I was so concerned with going to work, coming home, drinking, playing games, whatever. Yeah. I, th I thought it was, you work and then you come home and play. It, it never occurred to me that I could do this kind of stuff. And I looked into it a couple of times. I thought about like, how can I get into blogging? But like, I never made the first step. You know? yeah, and, then, and, and then one day I did. 
The big catalyst for me was my divorce, you know, just going through all that shit. It, just, it felt like my whole life was falling apart. I'm like, man, when I get through all this shit, I'm doing everything. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, and that's, that's a great point, too. And you, look, you look over the course of a lifetime, Yeah, you know, there's always those defining moments. And, and I, we, I was having this conversation with a coworker, and, you know, we were talking, and I'm like, my defining moment, out of all the moments I've had in my life, I've had a lot of really, really good moments. I was like, but what shifted our mindset? My, my wife and I was her battle with breast cancer. And that's why I tweeted earlier, my tweet about, I, I don't do pink October um, for various reasons. But, you know, that was one of those things when you come to, it, it, it usually takes some cataclysmic event in our lives to take you by the head and twist you and go this way. This is what's important. You know, and we, and it's funny because we, how many times have you gone to a funeral, memorial service or, or a wake, a divorce party, whatever. And somebody, you know, some, some tragic event for somebody and you go, you know, life's too short. You know, I bet that person didn't know when they got up that morning that that was going to be the last time yeah. they took a really good long pee first thing in the morning. They didn't know that was going to be their last one. And so we go, we're not going to be like that. And what do we do that next night? We're, we're arguing about some stupid bullshit on Twitter. Yeah. We're worried about some stupid thing that we really don't have any control over. It's not going to matter five days from now, much less five years from now. It's not until life grabs us by the testicles and yanks real hard that <laughs> gets your attention and you go, okay, maybe I don't want to be like that. So, right. you know, that for me, that was what yanked my testicles really hard. And I'm like, look, man, I work really, really hard and we make a lot of good money. We've had a really good life and we've worked hard to get here. I'm not going to leave it for my kid to go blow. Um, I love him to death, but he's going to earn his own shit. So it's like, let's go, you know, we're going to buy a pass to amusement parks and we're going to go try to ride all 10. And right now we're seven out of 10 for those keeping score at home. We have ridden seven out of the 10 of the top 10 world's highest, fastest roller coasters. Um, So, I mean, you just make little bucket lists like this and that's what you do. So, well, but yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's, it took a divorce for you to get you on your path. It took, you know, an illness for my wife to get us on our path. Everybody has that in the moment. Some will come yeah. at 20, some won't come until they're 60, some won't come at all. And that's the saddest thing, really, man. If you think about it, Ryan, those are the saddest people in the world that they're going to get to their deathbed and go, what the fuck was this all about? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, Chuck. I think, um, I've, I've asked this a couple of times. I think, I'll ask you if you want, but I think you have to go through that moment. Like I'm not, I'm not seeing it to hit rock bottom. Like my, mm-hmm. my, even, even that like the worst parts of my divorce, it was never rock bottom. I was still, you know, eating pretty good. My life was pretty good. Like I had satellite, you know, I could watch football if I wanted to. It wasn't like anything. What an okay day would be if I was living in, in you know, like Rwanda during the genocide that went on there, you know, but at the same time, it's like, I look back at those moments and I'm almost kind of glad it happened. <laughs> you know, it's because yeah, no, no. you think about your life before this happened. And, and I think about, like you said, I was living this like kind of aimless life where I was going to end up, you know, in, in the grave one day, I was gonna look back and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what the hell I'd have written about myself. You know, that's, that's something that, um, that should wake people up. Imagine, if you had to write your own autobiography today, what would you write about? And if you can't complete that assignment, well, you got some living to do. 
Yeah. No. Um, shit. You said you were a, a P3 flight engineer. I mean, were you flying these things or? Um, flight engineer was basically a third pilot. I didn't, okay. didn't really have controls. We, but you're, you're because in it was an analog. P3. Yeah, it was an analog aircraft. So, you know, we had a third guy up front that I was mostly, um, the systems, the aircraft systems, you know, you know, I did fuel transfer, started the engines, you know, emergency procedures and all that, you know, I shut the engines down for fires. If we needed to do that, I did fuel yeah. logs. Um, really just, a it's the old school analog aircraft third pilot for more or less for See, I, a, a good, a good analogy, I guess. I, I think that's a huge part of life is just collecting these little like experiences like that. I mean, that's, that's an incredible adventure yeah. that I'll never go on, you know, and, and I love flying. I, I mean, I've never flown a plane myself, but like mm-hmm. I, I've been obsessed with it since I was a little kid. I wanted to be a fighter pilot like all my life growing up. And then, you know, I come to find out like my, my vision sucks. And I knew that, um, but I didn't know you had had 20, 20 vision to become a, yeah. a fighter pilot. But, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, it is. And it's, it's I'm, I've been thoroughly blessed, man. I tell people all the time. It's, you know, I'm again, back to the imposter syndrome, you know, people thank me for my service all the time and it's, how does that make you feel? I feel like people that are actually like in the military think it's like a hollow gesture and they feel kind of annoyed by it. Does that bother no, you or do you just not? Absolutely not. It's not a hollow okay. gesture. And I know that the, the majority of people that say it yeah, I think are they very it. sincere and they mean yeah. it. Um, and it's, it took me a long time to figure out my response to that because yeah. You know, you want to sit there and go, no, really, I should thank you because, you know, I've been around the world, you know, four or five times. I've been to the North Pole. I've been to the South Pole. I've been, I literally have been all over the world on your dime, on your taxpayer dime. (laughs) Um, You know, so I really should be thanking you. And, and, but besides that too, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to relay back to, someone that does it. It's hard to re- relay back just exactly what an honor it is for us to do what we do. Um, for me, it was, there's been, you know, other than being a father and a husband, there's been no greater honor in my life than to be allowed the privilege of wearing a uniform of my country and representing my country around the world. It's a, it's a tremendous honor and it's a tremendous privilege that we don't take very lightly. So when people say, Hey, thank you for doing that. You really just, you want to just grab them and go, no, seriously, dude, thank you, man. Thank you for, for, thank you for allowing me to do that, man. You let me represent you. And you know, you, I was worthy enough at some point at any given time, I was considered worthy enough to give my life for you. So, and that's a tremendous honor that people don't take very lightly. Um, but when you, you basically, you learn how to do, you can't take 30 minutes of their time and explain it to them, obviously, because right. they'll think you're crazy. Um, so really all we do is I just learned, you know, you know, I get it still get it. Hey, thank you for service. I go, Hey, you know, thank And I just very simply say, you know, thank you for, for thinking of us. Uh, we appreciate your support and just want you to know what an honor it is for, you know, it was for me to serve you, uh, one of my fellow citizens and you just kind of go from there. But it's very hard. I mean, I was one of those guys. It was. I still have a hard time. I don't wear, you know, the U.S. Navy retired hat and all that because it's still very hard. Even God, I retired twelve years ago. Yeah, two thousand seven. Shit. It's still hard for me to wrap my head around 
the fact that I'm one of those old, old retired guys, you know, sitting at the bar at the VFW. Um, but I mean, I do go to the VFW, but I mean, it's just, you, it's hard to wrap your head around sometimes that, you know, it was, to me, it was like, this was the coolest job in the world, man. I mean, I flew along the ocean at 200 feet and 300 knots slinging ordnance off the airplane. Um, it was a rush, you know what I mean? It was, it's, I'm one of the few, you know, very few people that got to do it. And so really it's kind of, um, and, and that's, God, man, you got me into hawking my own shit now. But yeah, I'm I'm good at getting people talking. <laughs> no, you're, you're a humble man, Chief. It's, decided, it's okay to open up. I finally decided, you know, and this will lead us to the inevitable talk about. We had to mention sanction at some point because we oh. do on every podcast. <laughs> I've been fortunate. I've been very fortunate lately to have several phone conversations with Roman McClay. Um, I've spent a few hours talking to Roman, and he's. He's just exactly, you never, the people listen, if you never talked to him or never interacted with Roman, he's exactly, <laughs> he's even better, cooler than you'd think he would be on the internet. He's very easy to talk to and very, very passionate about what he does. Um, but we talked and I was like, hey, you know, your story, this story, that. And, and you know, we kind of had this conversation and I kind of, he goes, so what did you do, man? And I told him, he goes, chief, he goes, you got, he goes, you want to write? He goes, you got to tell this story, man. He yeah. goes, you have the ability to make people. He goes, people trust you. He goes, tell your story, man. He goes, but tell it, tell it just like you talk it. He goes, you have, a, I told him a couple of stories and he's like, man, I felt like I was in there flying with you. That's awesome. He goes, he goes you got to tell that story like that. He goes, put the, he goes, if you, and he, Roman, Roman kind of keyed me off to what we just talked about. He goes, Hey man, he goes, if you really want to show your gratitude to these people for letting you do this on their dime, he goes, take them on that ride with you, man. He goes, obviously you can't put them in the airplane and do it anymore. He goes, but do the next best thing. He goes, take them on that ride. People he love goes, a story, man. He goes, don't, he goes, don't try to write like Roman McClay. He goes, don't try to write sanction. He goes, cause nobody will ever write another sanction. He goes, nor anybody should. He goes, don't worry about editing. He goes, just tell the story. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's kind of why uh, I've kind of gotten back into the bug of, I want to write a book, you know, it, it, short or long, whatever it is, but, you know, put you in the airplane flying with me, but also want you sitting at the bar with me at four o'clock in the morning when you realize you got a pre-flight in a few hours and you're going, shit, I got to get back to the base. And, you know, some of the funny things that we did and some of the funny stories that happened. And I want to put you on the ramp pre-flight with me in Puerto Rico when it's 84 degrees at three o'clock in the morning and pouring rain and I'm soaking wet and I got a 12 hour flight ahead of me. You know, I want to put everybody into that, into that world just to take you along and say, Hey man, this really was when it was all said and done, this was really just so freaking cool and thank you all. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the things that, you know, I try to pay back to people is um, I, I'm a firm believer in, and it's my sacred duty and it sounds, God, this sounds corny when it No, comes. I think the world needs to hear Chief Chuck's story. It's, <laughs> it that's sounds, why I've had you on here. Coming out loud. But You're I on the path like of his podcast. We're on number, I think, 19 here. It's, it's <laughs> flirting with getting kind of serious at this point. So. No, I mean, it's just, 
I considered it, I considered a duty to pass along my knowledge and try to bring the next generation along up on me because I'm, I am standing, I am truly standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and not to infer that I'm a giant myself, but I got big shoulders. I need to put, you know, I need to put you, I need to put Benji, I need to put Garrett, my son, I need to put all y'all up on my shoulders. And, and it's, it's not, it's not something that it's, it's not because I need to sell a book on Gumroad and it's not because I need to sell my 699, how to be an e course. <laughs> it's not. We'll, we'll put it on Amazon then. You won't make much yeah, money. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to create a room, a room and charge people $500 to come have dinner with me. All I want to do is I want to bring you fools along and I want to show you, man, it's like, look, man, this is what it means. In my opinion, this is what it means to be an honorable man. This is what it means to be a man of integrity. This is how I want you to, this is how I want you to conduct yourself. And then when I'm gone in a few years, I want you guys to be grabbing that next generation and we just keep stacking and we keep stacking because it's just so important to me. Ray Poulard calls that the uh, cultural tapestry. And yes. So it's trying it to like weave these stories together. And, and um, you know, at some point it gets lost. You, you look back a certain number of years, you, you lose touch with things that happened in the past. But, you know, some people get hung up on stories like 9-11 or the bombing of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, but stories much more you know, insignificant than those can be more significant to us because they're more relatable. Yeah. The, the idea of being able to relate to a single person's experience in the Navy. I mean, that's, if, if I was a young guy and I've never been in the Navy, so this kind of works out, but if I was a young guy and I don't know anything about the military, I'm turning 18, I'm trying to decide what the hell I'm going to do. And I see your book, like maybe that nudges me in the right direction or maybe, yeah. maybe I'm not the guy for it. I don't know, but then I, it will. Yeah. Then I think, I don't know. What, what would you say to guys like, you know, would you tell a young guy today to join the Navy? Would you tell them to go to college? I mean, does it depend on who they are? You know, I mean, I've, I've had, I've had a lot of thoughts about this in the discussion. I mean, college per se, I don't know that I would, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing per se. I, I would tell a young man right now, you're getting ready to graduate high school. First thing I'm going to ask him instead of, instead of, because he gets this question a thousand times, you know, what is it you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? My question would be, what makes you smile? What makes your heart, what makes your heart feel full, man? What is that thing that you're, what is your passion? Um, That dude, you know, you may grab an 18 year old guy that's getting ready to graduate high school and he may whisper in my ear, you know, hey, you know, chief really it's Irish folk dancing. Damn well, it. then dude, you need to go to a artistic college, yeah. you know, a Juilliard or something like that, that you can hone your craft, man. And that's, that's again, you see a lot of articles about that here lately. It's the craftsmanship. What is it? What is your craft? It's not your job. It's not your occupation. It's your craft. You know, some guy may be like chief. I want to go in the military because I want to kill people. Okay, well, that's certainly the, the place to do it. It's sanctioned it's by lot, law. It's, it's a lot better than not going to the military to kill people. Yeah, I mean, however, what you, you know, but on the same note, you tell that guy, okay, you know, killer, 
Yeah. And you need to understand <laughs> that the military is 99.9% pure boredom. Right. Interrupted by very short briefing periods of just pure chaos. Um, so no, you don't get to start just firing, slinging brass down range on the first day, but yeah. Okay. Or, you know, you know, what are you interested in? Dude, I'm chief. I'm really interested in aviation. Okay. Well, yeah, the military is a step to that. But then again, so is Emory Riddle Aeronautical College. You know, what are you tied up for? Yeah. You know, do you have the discipline? Do you want discipline? You know, again, it's those, it's those things. The military has certainly changed since I came in. You know, it's, it's a smarter, better educated. Um, it's it, just by leaps and bounds, I mean, because of, of what we have. So Moved a lot more towards like the drone warfare and engineering and, and more it is. nerdy I mean, stuff. I've got a theory that is. part of the assault on masculinity and the way that they're kind of putting down like the t- traditional tougher alpha male and kind of you, you watch pop culture the nerdy guys is the smart guys they're becoming like the heroes the protagonists mm-hmm. my theory is that it's military indoctrination trying to build the next soldier we used to want gi joe now we want tony stark you do i don't know that's me throwing spaghetti at the wall i don't know if that sticks I, or not. i tell you what man i i won't tell y'all how to get to the link and i won't tell you how to do it but if you can figure it out if you can ever get inside the box and see how the controls are set up for predator drones let's just say that it looks very 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 similar to a ps4 game controller yeah and there's a reason for that yeah those things just don't pop up in the culture by accident and it's not that it's not that the military adapts civilian technology to military needs if you think that's the case then it's all about the user interface. People need to go look up what DARPA is. And <laughs> if you can figure out what DARPA is, then you'll figure out that most of the stuff that we're doing right now is was military technology first. Backed by I mean, they're they're really they're true to life Tony Starks out there. And you're right. I mean, we don't need we don't need John Wayne with an M one rifle jumping over a fence, charging, you know. A, a foxhole. That's not how we fight anymore. We never, and we never will again. Yeah. Um, it, we, the next, the next step, people laugh at, at Trump's, you know, space force. Well, go ahead and laugh silly. Cause what's, what's going to happen, man. That's where the next battle is going to come from. And, and we're already heading that way. And, and you know what, you read some of this stuff that, that people like Roman write about with AI. It's almost scary to the point of, you know, you guys are foreseeing stuff. But I think that the military now is still at, that, at its core needs those young men. There's always going to be people that have to maintain the drones. There's going to be people that have to change the circuit cards. There's going to have to be somebody to cook the meals. There's going to have to be somebody to work on the air conditioning of the building that houses the drones. So th- for a young man today, you need to figure out, do you want to do this? Do you want to work with your trade? Do you want to work run on trade and work with your hands? Do you want to sit behind a keyboard and, and punch button? What is it you want to do? There's an avenue for you. College, I, you know, going, I think we're, I have a prediction that in 15 years, I think the traditional walking through the brickyard at Harvard and spend four yeah. years going to class is going to be done and over with. We're going to do, I mean, I've gotten four degrees and they've all been online. I've never stepped foot in a classroom. So I, I think they'll shorten it. I think it'll become a two year degree. 
Well, and that too, and I think because what you're seeing more and more of now, because of societal stuff, more and more people are homeschooling their children. So kids are going to be more and more used to doing things like what we're doing right now with Zoom is talking to an instructor and doing an online curriculum. They're going to be so comfortable with that that the logical next step is to do it the way I did and do online courses to get a degree. So, I mean, do you need to go and sit in a class and live in a dorm and, and, you know, get drunk and I mean, yeah, you should do all that, but you're not going (laughs) to have to. I I think there is a lot of qualities to, um, to college that get left behind. Um, Some of the more studious people probably miss this, but um, this this is probably kind of funny when you, when you hear this coming from me, but I was incredibly introverted all my life. I was super awkward. Didn't like talking to people um, until college. And then I, started hanging out with more people, started drinking a little bit, and I got really comfortable talking to people. I took a speech comm class, got comfortable speaking in front of people. And I mean, I came out of college a very, very different person mm-hmm. than when I did um, going into it. And not only that, but it lets you network with a neat group of people. That's, that's, sure. I had a hard time getting out of that too when I graduated college. I missed being around intelligent, motivated people because there's a lot of guys that just want to live for the weekend or whatever. And we yeah. make fun of them all the time on Twitter. But mm-hmm. even, even though in college we do like 100% 52 weeks a year, live for the weekend. There are people that don't live for the weekend. There are people that have grand designs and big dreams. And, and a lot of those dreams get swashed. But at that time, there's this energy there and it's, it's infectious. And that's why I love this group of Twitter. Because yeah. I've got a lot of real life friends that, you know, they've, they've got good, good jobs. They're working hard, but you know, they don't want to do this kind of stuff. And because of the beauty of the internet, we've been able to network. And if you make fun of social media and you haven't given it a chance of like actually networking and actually like talking to people, and I don't mean just replying to somebody's tweet, but also like reaching out, like it's, especially people like at the same level as you, if if that makes any sense, like you're both like kind of like in the same area trying to figure certain things out. It's, it's super helpful. Well, I think, you know, I, I'll kind of, you know, make the plug for, you know, the ION group, but, you know, I look back and you see the stories that, you know, Ben Franklin in Ben Franklin's young days in Philadelphia and New York, you know, Ben Franklin created these groups at night of these friends. And it was basically, I call it an an intelligati. It's like an Illuminati, but with intel. But you sit around, and it's a, it's a diverse background of trades and 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 families and all this. But you sit in this room at night, and you're by the course of that, it was a bunch of men, but now it's a bunch of people, and you can have a somewhat civil discourse of events, and we talk things out just like we do on Ion. We yeah. we 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 created and cultivated a group of people that we are all very, very diverse. We're all from different backgrounds. We're all, all of different things, but we can all sit and have a discussion and talk about things. And we may not agree with each other, but we do not get into the typical yeah. dumpster uh, fire that social media can be. Well, and that was one of the core tenets of Ion Media's intent was to, um, to, to facilitate discourse, especially mm-hmm. among people that disagree with each other. And 
Um, it, yeah, I, there's there's a lot that most of us agree on, and there's things that we don't. And the neat thing is, we just kind of accept it, you know. And, and sometimes we challenge those ideas. You know, I, I've changed mm-hmm. my ideas and values over time a lot. I've become more open-minded with age than most people do. Yep. Um, but it's, I. I don't think people know exactly what IM Media is, although it's becoming more well-known, especially with the emails. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not going to explain exactly what this means yet, but it's it's growing a lot quicker than I anticipated, and that's going to become apparent within a few months. Yeah, I think so. And then, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things to where it's, we're not, we're not a response to anything, you know, and that's, you know, you talk, when we talk amongst ourselves and we talk in the group, you know, we, I don't want people to get the impression that we are a response to 21Con. We're not a response to Fraternity of Excellence. We're not a response to the war room. Those folks are doing great. I mean, Hunter's doing great things. Yeah. You know, Anthony, he's got 21Con, but, you know, it's not my, it may not be my thing, but that's okay. I'm not going to sit here and, and, and shit all over it because they're doing things that they want to do. And that's great. What they're doing is they're getting a message out. Same thing that we're doing, but we're not an answer to that. We are what we are. And I think what it is, is to, you know, is to kind of try to bring not just a narrow lane of focus, but kind of a wider beam of, Hey man, we've got enough people in this group that if you want to talk, you know, discipline, you know, honor, you know, old school stuff. Well, there's me, you know, you have got a line on, you know, how to become a better, you know, truly a path to manliness, but investment ideas. You got Garrett, who's the philosopher King. You got young Benji. Okay. We don't know what Benji does, (laughs) but you know, you've got cake and you got Allie who, who bring the feminine perspective, but with a lot of really strong professional credentials, behind it. And so when you wrap and you got, you know, Huntsman, who's, you know, the king of logistics that if we needed to get a dead body move somewhere overnight, that that's, we're going to call him, you know, but you have that diverse group that, you know, whatever your flavor is, you know, we've got it and we can talk to it. But then we, when you're set, it's all said and done, man, you got the fitness from fitness to finance, to philosophy, to just, well, then there's me. I don't know exactly. I'm just the old grumpy guy on the porch yelling at kids <laughs> to get out the lawn. You're too hard on yourself. You get you <laughs> you bring you teach people about honor. You teach people about yeah. experience with the Navy. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, but it is. I mean, you got you there's, know. There's plenty. As, as I tell them, I'm the grandpa of that ion. You know, if you want to, you know, I'm like those old dudes that you saw on the internet that went to a flea market <laughs> and they set up that tent and they're like, free advice. It's probably shitty, but it's free. What do you want? That's me, man. I'm the old guy sitting at the flea market. I'll give you advice. It may be crap advice. It's worth every penny. It. Yeah. I'm, I, I tell you what, I'll give it to you for free. And if you're not satisfied, I'll double your money back that you paid in. No problem. So, you know, that's just one of those things. But, you know, and it's the fun side too. So, hey, look, man, I don't want to hold you up no longer tonight, man. We got, I got to jump. I got to go to bed. It's 930, man. I hear you, man. People got to go to bed. That did sounds we, good. Did we talk about sanction though? We did talk about okay. I don't have a copy to hold up. I do, but hold um, your copy up. Mine's on my Kindle. Hang on. Dude, I can't pick that book up, man. It's heavy. I'm, I had I'm, knee surgery and I got a hernia. 
Uh, I've been training for Spartan races, so I'm ready to lift this up. Now, this is normally an auditory-only podcast, but maybe we'll put this one on the video. I've thought about putting some of these on video. Now, I would ask everybody before I put your particular episode up, by the way. Yeah, you can put it. I don't give a shit. People have seen me before. But I tell you you what, man, when do you get done with that one? Because I'm already like two chapters into two. Because I've already finished one. <laughs> I'm struggling to get through it. I um, I love it. I'm really into it. It's just, it's a big ass book, and uh, I, it's dawning. I will say yeah, that. Yeah, I I also have this weird habit. I don't know what it is with me, but whenever I read a book, I struggle to get through the first like hundred pages. And I'm, right now, I'm at hundred pages, and then I seem to fly through the rest of it. So I can I can already see them like starting to pick up speed as I read it. So I think I'll get through it quicker now. But and, sanction. And, it's by Roman yeah. McQuay, and it's it's kind of funny to talk about this because I've I've never I can't remember the last time I felt like I was so in on the ground floor or something. But this is one of those books that's just it's gonna be a big deal. It just it's not it is white mass of people yet, but you can tell it's getting bigger and bigger. And I know it's selling well. But um, the thing I, is about it, and you know, it's it's funny because the 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 connection between Roman and I started three months ago, four months ago, when I started reading Sanction. And I just happened to DM him one day. And without giving away too much, I just DM'd him and I'm like, hey, I'd like to talk to you if you have a chance. I'd like to talk to you about the inmate's number. And he just kind of laughed and he messaged me back. He goes, you're the first person to mention that. And so we had a conversation from that. And once you figure that out, as you read through Sanction 1, once you figure the significance of that, the book takes on, it, it's almost like it opens a subtext to the book that now you start seeing things inside the story that you didn't see before. Huh. And if you go forward, it plays out at the end and you understand and and Roman will tell you that he didn't, he used to be hardcore atheist and he's not anymore. And I used to be very, I guess, agnostic to a while, but, and this is not hyperbole for the book or anything like that. The things that I picked up deciphering sanction, it changed my mind about a lot of things in the universe because it caused me to do some research that led me to things that there's just no possible way that this is a fateful coincidence of a bunch of space dust that exploded one day. And the only clue I'll give to that is if you, I did a very in-depth research study into Fibonacci sequence and I can't say anything else because that'll give away part of the book. But anyway, it'll lead you to things to where you start seeing that there, there really are, there's no way that certain things that are alike across different areas of the universe, that there's no way that that can be a coincidence. There's absolutely no possible way that that is a coincidence. So call it intelligent design, call it creator, call it God. I don't care what you call it, yeah. but you, you have to, you have to reconcile with that. Yeah. Something, um, I never really talked about this before. Something kind of guided me into this. I, I don't really know how to explain it, but um, around the time of the uh, lunar eclipse a couple of years ago, 
I, I don't know what happened. It was like a weird shift happened to me, but I, I got really drawn to um, the pyramids and into mm-hmm. different like numbers. And I, I started digging into this stuff. And this was before I knew any of you, before I even had a Twitter account, really. And I just, I kept digging. I kept seeing these weird things. I started reading about it and writing about it. And it became this massive black hole. And there's some there's some weird truths out there when you look into these numbers and there's a lot mm-hmm. more to those pyramids than people think when people say mm-hmm. we can't just build, it's not, they're not just a stack of rocks. Nope. Uh, they're, they're interesting. And, um, it, it makes you wonder when you start looking to that and it leads you into, it created uh helm of awesome first and then this, and it, it kind of makes you wonder how, how, I don't know. Like I said, it's, it's whether you believe in God or not or a grand design, but there's powerful forces at play, I think, and I don't know how else to the, describe the math, it. The math of the pyramids will come into play during sanction as well. Oh, shit. Well, now I have to read this book. So, <laughs> no, this is an incredible book. It's about it um, AI. It's, it's about how it's warning humanity about AI. It's about so much more. It's about yeah. being a primal man. It's just man, it's a fucking crazy book. Just, yeah. Every single page has at least one line that makes me just stop and think, holy shit. It does. And, and you know what? When you get into two, two is a little, to me, honestly, and Roman will kill me for saying this, but two is <laughs> – Two is a lot easier to read than one was. Um, I told Roman the other night, I was like, I think you, I think in two, I was like, I think you got your freaking weird thesaurus flex <laughs> done in sanction one. I was like, sanction two, you kind of just, you got into the flow of the story pretty quick. And it, it, it's still, it's written just like one was, but it still, it ties after you get done reading one, when you read two, it's easier to start tying all the things together and you get his flow, the way he writes his book, you know? Yeah. It's every, cha- every chapter has like three, almost like little mini chapters, um, yeah. three storylines in each chapter. And he continues that in two. And it's, you know, it's, we've almost, it's, well, we haven't almost, we have, you know, we've mean this thing into something that is, is pretty wild. And, yeah. but you know, it's, to me, it's a mark. Of, I love to read, and it's a mark of a great author when you can take twenty people, and twenty people can read this book and read the exact same story on the surface. But when they think about it, when their right brain starts digesting it, the left brain will read it the same, and we'll all read the same story about AI and, and this. But then, when your right brain starts digesting it, we're all going to come up with twenty different things that we think it means and what he was really trying to tell us. And not to be over, overly, you know, crazy with this, but the last book that I read that did that same thing was the Bible. And I'm not here to say that Roman McClay is God or wrote another Bible, but I'm just saying yeah, that is the mark of a good author and a good storyteller. It's funny you say that. I've been kind of hesitant to say, but there's a lot of there's a lot of things about that book that reminds me of the Bible, and it's I don't I don't know of any other book that's made me feel that way before. And it's, it is. I mean, and that's just the mark of a great author. Yeah, it's just it's just an incredibly well written book, but it's also very unique and it's very different. It's a lot more depth and layers than most books that people are writing nowadays. I mean, and I tell you, when, when it's impressive when, when Roman actually gets out and starts, if he ever gets out and starts meeting people, and the more people that get to meet him and talk to him, I think he might. I think it means it, it will tell you it will tell you a lot more about the story, and then you almost start wondering 
and he won't tell you because he didn't tell me, and I don't know that he's told anybody else. He won't give you the definitive yes or no as if this is an autobiography or not, but it's probably very close. But I think it's just a mix of, you know, again, it goes back to he figured out a story. He told a story, and that story touches people. No matter how it's crafted and constructed, you pick up these things. I mean, the very first opening line, and I tell, I told, I've told so many people this that have asked me, what is sanctioned? And I'm like, I wrote it on my whiteboard at work the other day. And I'm like, all I want you to do is read this. I don't want you to say a word. I just want you to think about it. And I wrote down, pain demands a response. The very opening words of the book, pain demands a response. It'll move you. Yeah. You know, there is no wrong answer either. Because you can, you can get very deep. But Roman and I had this discussion. I was like, well, what if I get some jackass that goes, pain demands a response. Well, shit, ouch. He's he right. Goes, he goes, they're response. not wrong. He goes, they're not wrong, are they? I'm like, no, they're not. Yeah. He goes, you just summed up sanction. Sanction is exactly as deep as you want it to be. He's I'm a like, fascinating wow, guy. He is, man. So it's a fascinating book. So, okay. So we've spent the last 10 minutes selling. <laughs> I also wrote a blog post about it. So with no affiliate links. So no, I am just intent on making it a thing. Cause yeah, I believe the world, I think the world needs to read it. Yeah. Um, most of what I believe it or not, most of what I do is not motivated by money. I think people probably think that it is, but um, no, there's just, there's things that I think the world needs to see. And there's things that I think the world needs to know. And I'm intent on making it happen. So. You're right, man. Well, hey, man, thanks for having me tonight. That was great, you. This has been awesome, man. I enjoyed it. It's fun, right? Yeah, You're easy to talk to. We'll do another uh, one. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> I'm going to try to start doing these a little bit more often because okay. I, I want to – I got like a list of people I want to talk to, but at some point it's probably going to – we'll probably well, go through the Ion guys again because I got more things I want to talk about. Well, yeah, man, let's do it. Next time you, 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 know, you need somebody to fill in entertainment, let me know, man. I'm here. <laughs> I always got something to talk about. Yeah, you're not kidding. No, I appreciate it. I love your emails. We'll link Thanks, that down below too. So Ion Media cool. emails, they're pretty awesome. So yeah. All right. Cool. Path Manliness. Thanks. Thanks again. I mean, for real. This is cool. This is like one of the better ones. I mean, they've all been really good, but I, I, I this has been really, really informative. I think a lot of young guys are gonna get a lot out of it. I just want good. I just want you to understand that. So thank you. Thanks, man. Josh. Yeah. Path Manliness signing off. If you enjoyed this episode of the Pats Millionaires podcast, be sure to write us a review. That way we can reach more men that are lost and need direction in their life. And if you feel that you are lost and you need direction in your life, or you simply are looking for brotherhood, a sense of belonging, a place where you can be a man, a traditional man, and be around other men who are motivated and working to build something themselves. Check out patreon.com slash path to gain access to the private Discord server where you can connect with other highly motivated individuals.